Hello, and welcome to River Writers, a production of the Writers Guild of Astoria, a 501c3 nonprofit supporting writers and the literary arts in Astoria and the Lower Columbia region. I'm your host, Marianne Monson. Aired the second Monday of each month at 9 a.m., River Writers provides a chance to peek behind the curtain at the craft of writing. What motivates writers to do the work they do, and what have they learned through their creative process? I'm excited to have with me in the studio today Pacific Northwest poet Emily Ransdell, who recently released her first poetry collection, One Finch Singing. She was the winner of the 2021 Writers Guild Poetry Contest and ended up reading her work on stage with Jericho Brown. She's been the finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize, as well as several others. She often teaches down the road at the Hoffman Center for the Arts in Manzanita. Welcome, Emily. Hi, thank you. Such a pleasure to have you in the studio today. And can I'm wondering if maybe we could start off our conversation with the poem that you read on stage with Jericho. Yeah, I'm thrilled to do that. And that was such an exciting event for me. I'm telling you that beautiful theater and then Jericho. I will for the rest of my life say I was once the opening act for Jericho Brown. <laughs> I, just, I just love to say that. You and me both <laughs> feel that way about that night. It's, oh. a, it's an evening that just like glows in my yeah. memory. Well, he's so. a a glowing human. So, he really is. Yeah. Yeah. All right, here's that poem. Great. It's called By Way of Introduction. My mother called me Petunia, though hers never bloomed. I was part empty flower pot, part lead paint. She was thumbed through magazine pages of do it yourself projects left unfinished, a cotton house dress worn unhemmed. She drank Jack Daniels from a juice glass, ashtray on her knees, lawn chair under trees, swelter of summer night. That's where she was when her water broke. Four weeks early, drunken bees careening through the spindly peach trees left unpicked. I should have named you Alberta, she said. All my life I've had to hear that. Sometimes she calls me Sweetie Pie said you can tell a lot about a person by the kind of pie they like. Take you, she said one night, a little juiced. You're the blackberry type. Your perfume alone is praise. You're what I'd say if I prayed. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Really beautiful. You know, as you were reading, I was thinking about all of the thematic connections between your work and Jericho's, which I think is was definitely on the mind of the people, you know, judging that contest. But I'm curious what you think about the thematic connections. Or did you were you aware of Jericho's work before? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you were. You know, my first thought was there can't possibly be any, there couldn't be two people more different than me and Jericho Brown, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm uh old, older, and a white, hetero, uh, you know, every, I'm kind yeah. of the opposite of him in every way. And, but uh, in his work, you can always feel a sense of where he comes from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was what I felt was a con the connection for, for me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what your judges thought, but I felt I'm a poet who reflects where I came from yeah. and so is he and he, he and yeah 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think there is there is a lot of sense of place. Mm-hmm. Where was that that place in your poem? For me, yeah, um, I grew up in Ohio. Oh, okay. And, and at this poem, I, I grew up in two, Ohio and Indiana. I was actually born in Indiana, so this poem was probably set there. But yeah, you know those icky, hot, humid, yeah, <laughs> summer nights. Yeah, um, yeah. I transposed it in my mind to the South, I think, yeah. just you, because it has this mm-hmm. sort of like nostalgic mm-hmm. Southern feel. And I guess anytime you start talking about pie, I start mm-hmm. thinking about the South. Yeah. And yeah. Peach, peach trees. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was Southern Indiana. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I think there was a lot of connections to place and connections to family and mm-hmm. how that maybe formed you as a poet mm-hmm. and... You know, and the, of course, his work traditions was what we were talking about. So, yeah, all of the connotations around that word. So, so um, tell us a little bit about where you are from and and how you came to poetry in your life. Well, I grew up in the Midwest, as mm-hmm. I said. I uh, lived in Indiana, born in Indiana and Ohio. And um, oh, man. Uh, how did I come to poetry? I really never did anything else. In one way or another, I was always a writer of some kind. My mom actually was a very talented writer, mm-hmm. and she um, she wrote um, newspaper columns, you know, sort of like an Irma Bombeck kind of a thing. And she was just really talented, and I, I don't know, I like to think some of that maybe I, maybe I inherited, but... Um, I, as far as poetry goes, I what drew me to it, you know, I just think that poetry is so cool <laughs> because it can say so much with so few words. And a lot of times it says what it says without saying words. It's mm. the silences in between the words that can say so much sometimes. And I guess uh, it can speak through through what it doesn't say, mm-hmm. you know, and also metaphor, you know, how metaphor can make us see things in ways we never have before. It's just a wonderful, exciting thing. <laughs> yeah. So you, you had poetry in your DNA, it sounds like. I guess so. <laughs> always just sort of immersed in it. That's wonderful. Yeah. And then um, who have been some of your early writing mentors over the years? Well, um, so, you know, I, I always wrote lots of lots of sappy crap in mm-hmm. high school, and I took creative writing classes as an undergrad, and I got pretty hooked on it in college, and then I went for an MFA back in the 80s. So the first mentor really was Richard Hugo, mm-hmm. whom I studied with at the University of Montana, and that was... Um, he was just phenomenal, you know, in terms of his humanity and um, honesty on the page, uh, and his no take no crap kind of attitude too. So he was my first mentor, and then um, I don't know, you might know, I went later in life. I studied at um, Pacific University, where there are amazing poets. Oh my goodness, Ellen Bass. Dorian Laux, mm-hmm. Joe Millar, um, Kwame Dawes, and then there are some other great ones there. The recently, the one we recently lost, Marvin Bell. Um, yeah, it was just a wonderful experience that fueled me 
forever. <laughs> That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their program is is wonderful. It is. And actually, with the Writers Guild, we'd love to do more collaborations with their program. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. So you recently released or are just about to release your first poetry collection with Concrete Wolf Press. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it, it is now officially out. Oh, congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you so yeah. much. So I'm holding exciting. it in my hand. I can't. It's just so exciting. It's beautiful. It's got artwork mm-hmm. of a bird on the mm-hmm. cover, and it's called One Finch Singing. Did you do the art? Do you, you have an No, artist? I have a friend who is a excellent artist in Camas, Washington. Her name is Anna Norris. And uh, this One Finch Singing is the uh, title of one of the poems that I felt was kind of a pivotal poem for me. And so we just researched pictures of finches, and she um, painted this. And I just love it. And of course, now I own the actual painting. Oh, (laughs) how wonderful is that? That's just fantastic. It's really gorgeous. Would you like to read us something from the collection? Oh, yeah, gosh. You know, this um, book spans a lot of territory from childhood to loss of parents and climate loss and everything. And so many of them are so sad. So I'm going to try to find one that isn't so sad. And that is um, called Beloved. And it is a love poem. Beloved, bring me your fears. Bring them like a handful of sad white lilies. And your sorrow, bring that too. In the walnut box your father made as a boy. Corners tightly dovetailed, brass hinged heartwood varnished to a sheen. Treasures you left there decades ago, still rattling inside. Dust-colored sparrow wing, a cufflink, the home address of that boy at summer camp you couldn't save. Bring me the memory of your high school sweetheart, the field behind your house, the long minutes you breathed for your mother until the ambulance came. Bring me your misgivings, your heartache. I'll haul it all to the river in a cart strung with white carnations and won't ask that you come along. You never did like to talk about what's gone. That's okay. I'll come back with that cart scrubbed clean. Mm. Beautiful. It's really gorgeous. Mm. Thanks. I love the the implications of bringing all of yourself, you mm-hmm. know, all your sorrows, all your past selves and all your past everything, all of it into a into a loving relationship. It's really gorgeous. Thank you. Well, when you live with someone a long time, you know, yeah, you got to take it all. <laughs> yep. And ask for it all sometimes. Mm-hmm. Can't take pieces. It reminds me of Anis Majani's uh he often talks about like relationships as an unraveling, you know, mm. an unraveling of yourself, of all the threads mm-hmm. of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. So we recently had a niece around us here, which was wonderful. So, um, well, congratulations on the new book. And do you want to tell us uh, where readers can find it? Where can they find the collection? 
um, <clears throat> right now it is available on all your, you know, normal online places, uh, Amazon and barnesandnoble.com and indie books. Uh, you can go on my website and it can direct you there. My website's um, my name, emilyransdell.com. Um, we're working at finding uh, local outlets. Um, it's, right now as we're speaking, it's just out. So um, hopefully we'll get it in some bookstores here on the coast. Yeah, we need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lucy's books and Beach books, they're both really supportive of local authors. Yeah. So hopefully you can get it get it there and people can find it there support their local bookstore and their local authors <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Emily um so I wanted to ask you 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 say that what that um an aspect of poetry that engages you deeply is is the concept of surprise mm -hmm. within poetry mm -hmm. so both for the reader as well as for the author That's can right. you tell me about that yeah, yeah. I, I'm so glad you asked this because, uh, you know, I, you said earlier I teach writing at the Hoffman Center in Manzanita, and I this is this is one of my favorite things to explore with students. It just it just takes people um, to new places. So when I was in graduate school, I worked with Ellen Ellen Bass, and uh, she she really brought this concept home. She said, you know, if you already know what you want to say, don't write a poem, write an essay. A poem is not a way to express what you want to say. It's a way to explore what you have inside you that needs to be said. Mm -hmm. And I, that is just an amazing thing to me. I mean, I know it sounds kind of might maybe a little woo-woo, uh, you know, but a poem is an exploration of what you didn't know before you sat down to write it. Um, it's that moment of um, that you know is true. You didn't mm -hmm. even know you knew it. But the moment it comes to you and you write it down, you're like, whoa. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's a truth that lives inside you even even if you haven't discovered it until that moment. So, yeah. 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 And I love that quote from, from Ellen because, I mean, for instance, with an essay, you can write an outline, right? Yeah. Here's where I'm going to go. Here's yeah. my thesis. But you would never write an outline of a poem, right? No, you right? wouldn't. But you know what? <laughs> Beginners often don't realize that yeah they go I'm gonna write a poem about x and, yeah and I bet you've had this situation too someone you'll be doing something with a friend or someone and someone will go to you oh you should write a poem about that <laughs> yeah like, mm -hmm. or in my case you should write a novel a about novel. that <laughs> <laughs> okay <Yeah>. well <laughs> yeah so there's a, there's another thing I want to say about Ellen she, she I don't know who said it originally but she uh, I learned it from her, and she calls it this delicious moment of both inevitability and surprise. And mm. she calls it, oh, my God, of course. Yeah. Isn't that great? Oh, my God, of course. Oh, my God, of course. Yeah, the best books and poems, that, yeah, the best literature, it's like the, it's that feeling, right? Yeah. And it's actually really interesting because, like, the psychology between right and left brain, how your left brain really craves familiarity and safety and patterns and repetition, and your right brain really craves surprise and creativity and out of the box. And so when you're saying, oh, my God, of course, like, you're keeping both sides of your brain happy, right? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I've never thought about that. Yeah. That is great. And poetry may be the only place... Well, I suppose visual art can be that way, too. You don't mm -hmm. know. What, maybe all art. Maybe mm -hmm. all art is that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I definitely, like with my novels, I definitely feel like that. Because early versions of me in my MFA program, I would also write outlines. But I found then I didn't want to write the novel. You know, I had like no interest. Mm -hmm. I already knew what was going to happen. So it's like what you're saying with Mm -hmm. surprise. It's it's a fresher, more vivid experience, I think, for everyone involved, the writer and the reader. If you're coming to the page full of hope and not Mm -hmm. a big plan. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, that famous Robert Frost quote, uh, Uh no no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And Mm. you can't, you can't make it happen. You, you have to give yourself permission to just go where the poem leads you. Yeah. Or the novel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's very humbling. I think Mm -hmm. that way, you know, it's sort of, um, it's sort of a prayer if more than anything. So for those of you who are just joining us, uh, this is Marianne Monson on KMUN's River Writers, sponsored by the Writers Guild. And this morning I am speaking with author Emily Ransdell. And we are talking about her new poetry collection, One Finch Singing, and we're talking about her creative process. Mm -hmm. So going back to this element of surprise, um, so we've talked about the element of surprise for the uh for the author themselves is there anything you want to say in terms of the reading experience with Mm. surprise well have you ever gotten have you ever been to a poetry reading where at the end of a poem the you hear the audience make these little sounds (laughs) (laughs) like or you know just there's I feel it's the surprise sinking into them. Um, yeah, that's a good know. way to put it. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's really a cool moment. I think. Um, can I can I give you an experience, a, a little story from Absolutely. my own experience? Absolutely, sure, so, please do. Um, I uh, several years ago, I had this poem that was in progress, and I was really stuck on it. I was the poem was about visiting my dad in a nursing home, which you know, not the easiest material, right? And I just couldn't land on an ending without getting you know maudlin (laughs) or sentimental and I just put it away and I had really almost forgotten about it and then months went by and one day I was putting together a submission to send somewhere and they wanted five poems and I only had four that I felt were ready and so I just kind of you know went through my unfinished poems and I found that this one and I and I read it and in, I swear, an instant, an ending came to me. And um, it was, you know, it was the ending. And it was an ending that surprised me and also taught me something about myself. Um, it, I kind of came to an acceptance about my father's death just in that instant of that line. So, um I could read that poem if you're interested. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yes, I would love you to read that poem. And also, it reminds me of what uh, our friend Jericho Brown (laughs) says about how poetry does change you. That through the act of writing, you realize things. And that he asks himself, if I believe that, do I act that way? Right? And so it's like we are making the poems and the poems are also making us. Yeah. And there's this beautiful, you know, um, recursive relationship. Mm, Yes, please read the poem. All right. This poem is called The Visit. When I knelt to face him, he said my name. 
not the one he and my mother had given me, but the long-forgotten one he had called me as a child. Lem, he said, so matter-of-fact, as if half a century had not passed. No minnows, no fish hooks, no father chasing a porcupine with a towel. His precision like a surgeon's then, the delicate untangling of threads, removing without breaking the prize six spiny quills. I wheeled him back to his room as he asked, though that was not what he meant. Back through the hallway gauntlet of slack and spittle, past docile women and open back shifts left on snap for easy hygiene, past in excrements in unmistakable scent, to his room with its narrow bed like a child's. It took two kind aides with arms like oars to lift him. They were men on a schedule, so many to tuck in by dark. Still, they paused for the briefest moment as he settled. I watched from the doorway as the sheet floated white and quiet. They waited like parents do before turning out the light. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, so, you know, I just felt myself, when I got that line, I just felt myself let go of some of the trauma that I had held for so many years about losing him. Was it the line about the parents turning out the light? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a gorgeous mm-hmm. ending. I had seen, you know, I'd seen the, well, when my daughter was little, to calm her down, I used to, f- you know, fluff the sheet and let it come down over her and then up again, and she would laugh, and finally, you know, she'd start to settle in. Um, so that image was already there, but it was then turning out, the parent turning out the light that was... Um, okay. Yeah, that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love the role reversal that yeah. that captures, you know, like it hints at and the best lines of poetry, I think, sort of gather in a lot of things without hitting you over the head with them, right. you know? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like if I had gone in that moment, I, I knew our roles were reversed, you know. Right, right. You know, it would have been, yeah. ugh. <laughs> and that's the essayist's sort of <laughs> inclination, right, to make it really clear. And But poetry tells things slant, to quote our friend Emily. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A different Emily, <laughs> Emily Dickinson. Um, so, so in that poem that you read, you touch on, you know, a theme of grief. Mm-hmm. which I think surfaces fairly often in your work. Mm-hmm. And you do a beautiful job, I would say, of connecting your personal grief with collective grief. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about that? Oh, yeah, I could talk a long time about this. <laughs> you know, when I was putting the book together, I was kind of worrying that, oh, God, everything's so sad and all that. But, you know... The truth is, there is just so much grief in the world right now. How, how can it not come into our writing? How, how can it not? Simply being alive right now is to be living with loss. Um, there's a poem in the book called Elegy Interrupted, um, in which, well, so I should say that, you know, in addition to the pandemic and all the climate loss and everything, um, I lost my very closest friend during that time, not of COVID, not from COVID, but um, I lost her and couldn't be, you know, 
that was locked down. I could not even be around her, couldn't be, you know, couldn't grieve with anyone. And um, I wrote a poem about that. And one of the lines is, to grieve for anyone is to grieve for everyone. Mm. And, like, that's another example of surprise. It's like, I didn't know I, I thought that. <laughs> um, I'd been feeling so weird and confused about why I hadn't cried when she died. And I felt kind of ashamed of that. And when I wrote to grieve for anyone is to grieve for everyone, I realized, well, I can't take it all on. I can't, I can't, I can't take all this on. So I kind of shut down. So I think, though, yeah, grief is grief, and there's a lot of it right now. But I feel also that in acknowledging our collective losses, I think we find not just sadness, but also connection. Like you're nodding your head mm -hmm. as you're looking at me right now. That is a connection that the loss has the, you know. So connection is what gives us hope. And hope is what fuels change. So the circle comes around, you know. So um, I the title poem of the book is really, I feel circular in that in that way that it talks about all kinds of loss and I'm, I hope it ends with hope and um, I could read that yes I would love to have you read that mm -hmm. um, and also I'm so sorry for that mm -hmm. loss that you mm -hmm. went through that's so yeah. hard and and I just I love what you said about how grief is kind of this deep descent that the details are so personal and so specific and so different. And then yet, as you emerge a little bit from it, you realize how universal it is That's and right. like how much it connects you yeah. with like the whole human family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, um, absolutely. So, yes, please, amazing. please do read it. It is on page 27. <clears throat> it's called One Finch Singing. Some days... I want to fill my pockets with everything I'm afraid of losing. How much milkweed to save the monarch? How many foil blankets to keep an ancient redwood alive? I worry about finches, smaller than a fist, wingspan no bigger than an open hand. I keep thinking of what it took for them to get here, flying all those miles up to Oregon. I keep thinking of heat, cities hitting triple digits, London, for God's sake, Italy on fire. There's smoke again in Ashland, like the time Kay and I went for a getaway. All we had were bandanas, useless against that stench and ash. We walked the streets like grandmotherly bandits, drank gin with the Airbnb windows shut. By then I knew she was terminal. Still, it felt impossible she could die. I worry about beetle kill and rivers missing their fish, the dry tinder of California as creeks in Kentucky rage. I read that finches can live on thistles, as if to say, there's hope. The ancients thought finches carried souls to the afterlife, and the sound of one finch singing meant an end to grief. Last week, a brush fire ignited within sight of my porch, just like that, flames leapt from slash and grass to standing firs. Two thousand acres burned, 
Where did the birds go then? I miss my friend. I want to know those finches are somewhere, safe and singing, from meadow rush and ditch shrubs, calling to their kind. Wow. Hmm. Thank you so much, Emily. That is just gorgeous. And I think really captures a lot of the themes that we've touched on in our conversation today. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today on River Writers. And thanks again to my guest, Emily Ransdell, for sitting down to chat about her work. The book is One Finch Singing. And the Writers Guild of Astoria is a 501c3 nonprofit promoting the literary arts in the Lower Columbia region. You can visit us at thewritersguild.org. Until next time, keep the words flowing and your pencil sharp. I'm Marianne Monson for River Writers. 